have a copy of God's Word with you, I invite you to open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2, where we will continue our series through this book of prophecy, this book which uh, speaks to the people of Israel and by extension to us of the need for uh, reformation in God's people, the need for uh, appropriate worship of God, for depending upon Christ, the great high priest, for doing uh, those things which the Lord our God calls us to do. Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, and we'll read through chapter 3, verse 6, our focus this evening. Malachi 2, verse 17. This is the word of God. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us to instruct us, to teach us. We ask that you would teach us by your word this evening. We ask that as we see this great truth of the Lord who came suddenly to his temple and who purifies his people so they offer appropriate worship, that you would instruct our hearts, that you would direct us to look to the Lord Jesus Christ as the only one who may purify men. We ask that you would do this for your glory and your honor. In Christ's name, amen. amen. I invite you to imagine for a moment that you are not sitting here in church on a cold, uh, slightly wet January day, but rather it's the middle of summer the peak of summer when it's at its hottest and you are in your yard doing yard work. You're toiling away, working up a good sweat, 
maybe digging up some old dead plants or planting new plants and getting plenty of good old dirt on your hands, possibly on your face as you wipe sweat away, getting nice and, and dirty. And then as your day comes to a close, you go inside to eat dinner and you hear these words, you're not sitting at the table until you wash up. Maybe you had that experience when you were a child and you played outside, got good and dirty, rolled around in the mud a little bit, and you came inside and your mom said, oh, no, 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 you need to go take a bath right now. No sitting at the table until you are clean. Why do we make that kind of rule? Why do we need to wash our hands before we sit down when they're all dirty? Why do children need to, to take a bath before they walk on the nice white rug? Why is it that we want people to be clean when they come and, and join with a family? Well, it's not just a, a cultural thing, I think. It's not just a, a matter of preference. It's the fact that if you're all dirty and you reach across the table to grab a bowl and pass it to somebody else, and you get a a clod of mud in the food, it's not going to be very appetizing to anyone, is it? In fact, the the general uh, being dirty is probably not going to be conducive to a family dinner, is it? No, we need to be clean. And this kind of common experience of us all, I think, points to Uh, a deeper truth, a profound truth, which Malachi touches on this evening in chapter 3, beginning in chapter 2, and then really, really diving into in chapter 3, the fact that we people need to be purified before we can come to the Lord, before we can enter into his house, Before we can offer worship to him, we must be purified, cleansed. That's what Malachi teaches us, that the people of God must be purified. And he tells us who purifies the people of God. In Malachi 2, verse 17 through 3, 6. The breakdown of this text that I've given you that you can see in your bulletin falls into three different sections where Malachi deals with the people of Israel and their need for purification, a reminder of who the Lord is and and what he will do for his people. In chapter 2, verse 17, the people of Israel complain against God. So that'll be the first division that we'll look at this evening. Israel's complaint In chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, the Lord makes a promise to the people of Israel of something he's going to do. That's our second division. And then in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, the Lord speaks to the people of Israel with a warning and a reminder to them of, of who he is and what he will do on the last day. So we have Israel's complaint, we have the Lord or Jehovah's promise, and then we have Jehovah's warning that all together demonstrate to us who the Lord is and what we need him to do 
to us so that we might be purified people who can worship him well and truly. Let's jump in here then and look at what Malachi says to the Israelites and how this speaks to us this evening by looking first at Israel's complaint. Chapter 2, verse 17, we read these words, You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? The first thing we see here, as we look at this text this evening, is a very striking statement, isn't it? You have wearied the Lord with your words. In other words, God is tired of the Israelites complaining. God is tired of the Israelites complaining. He's wearied. He's he's worn out. He says, you keep saying these things to me. And I really wouldn't like to not hear this anymore. Now, let me take a second here and say what this doesn't mean. Sometimes we might kind of get a, an idea in our minds that we shouldn't go to the Lord with prayer over and over again because that might weary him. He might get tired of our prayers over and over again. But that's not what Malachi is, is condemning the people for through the Holy Spirit. God doesn't get Uh, worn out from our prayers. God doesn't uh, come to a point where he no longer has the energy to listen to his people. God doesn't ever need to take a break or take a nap when it comes to his people. But what this does mean is that there is a kind of complaining to which God says, that's enough. Stop. Now, there's a type of complaining, I think, that we see often in the Psalms that God does not say, that's enough, stop. David often goes to the Lord with his complaint and cries out to the Lord in supplication. But there is a kind of of complaint to the Lord which is wearisome to him, which he tires of, which which he doesn't want us to do. And what is that? It's, It's a complaint which dishonors God by speaking lies about God, by condemning God. Uh, for being unjust and untrue to his word, the kind of complaint which Israel brings against God, uh, a dishonoring kind of complaint. What does Israel say that wearies God so much? They say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or they ask, where is the God of justice? The reason Israel's complaint Their complaining is so wearisome to God is because they're complaining that God rewards the wicked. That God, instead of doing what he said he was going to do and punishing the evildoer, instead says, oh, you know what? You're a cheat. Great. Have some more. Or, oh, you're lying to get ahead. That's fine. Here, I'll make you successful. They accuse God of delighting in wrongdoing. They say the Lord delights in these people. He takes pleasure in the works of the evildoers. Now, obviously, the people of Israel are seeing people either in their own nation or in the nations around them who are acting wickedly and seem to be getting ahead in life. But Israel, instead of 
of depending upon God's promises and saying, you know what, these people might be getting ahead in this life, but they don't fear the Lord. They don't trust in him. They don't have his promises. They don't have his promises of salvation. So one day, uh, they're getting ahead. Their prospering will end. Instead, Israel says, well, really, what's the point of obeying God? What's the point of doing anything that we're supposed to do? God just rewards people that don't obey him. So they complain against God in that way. They, they say that he rewards the wicked or that he delights in wrongdoing. And then they, they also complain that God just doesn't care. They ask, where is the God of justice? Has God fallen asleep? Has he gone on vacation? Does, does the judge of all the earth do right anymore? Does he even care? Where is he? God isn't around. He's not doing what he said he's going to do. He's just ignoring the world. Maybe sometimes I think we're tempted to ask questions like this, to complain to God in these kind of ways, aren't we? We see people who uh, live wicked lives who seemingly are very prosperous. They seem to be happy. I think most of probably the richest people in in the world in our day and age are are not really people who seem to be living for the Lord at all. We might look at them and say, where's the God of justice? Lord, why do the wicked prosper? Why is it that that these people over here who love the Lord and and seek to, to do his will seem to be struggling? And yet this person over here who doesn't care about God, doesn't care about his ways, in fact, blasphemes God and curses God, why do they get ahead? Why do they seem to be successful? It's not inappropriate to ask these questions, but it is inappropriate to accuse God of wrongdoing when we ask questions like this. We should be encouraged to to cry out to God When we suffer, when we go through trials, we should cry out to God when it seems that everything in the world is is injustice and wrongness. We should cry out to the God of justice and say, oh Lord, vindicate your name. But we must never accuse God of not caring or turning his back upon the world or even worse, glorifying and delighting in wickedness. God does not do that. To make those kinds of claims is weariness to God. It's tiresome to God. He says, don't do that. Stop. That's enough. Just as he did to Israel. So Israel complains. They ask these questions. Where is the God of justice? And God says, you wonder where I am? Let me tell you. He gives them a glorious promise. Now, maybe as we've gone through this book of Malachi, you've kind of felt the weightiness of these prophecies. Remember, this is an oracle. It's a a heavy prophecy. Perhaps uh, as we've gone through and we've looked at how God rebukes the people for false worship and he rebukes the priests for not teaching the people and, and supporting this false worship as he rebukes the people for their faithless marriages, maybe you've been said, wow, this is, This is a lot. 
It's kind of depressing, isn't it? This is, this is a heavy book, and it is. But now we get into some of the heaviness, which, in fact, I think delights our souls. Because while we've, we've seen glimpses of Christ and the fact that we need that pure spotless lamb to take away our sins, we need that great high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, to make atonement for us. We need the faithful husband of the church to to uh, be faithful to us, now we see messianic promises from the Lord to the people of Israel. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3 where God's promise, Jehovah's promise begins. He says, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. They will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years." Glorious promise of God. He promises three things. He promises that the Lord himself will come to Israel. Look at verse one. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Now you remember in not so ancient world, but but in the ancient world and kind of up through most of human history, when a king would come into a, a city or a region... He would have someone go before him and announce his arrival. Kings typically did not just pop up uh, unannounced. That was beneath him. No, a man would go before the king and let everyone know the king is coming. Get ready. Prepare yourself. Your Lord will be here soon. And the Lord says that his arrival will be preceded by a messenger. Now, y'all know your Bibles very well, and I'm sure that you know who this messenger is. Pastor Matt will get to the part in Matthew where this messenger will appear. This is indeed John the Baptist, the voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the paths of the Lord. The messenger announcing to the people, the Lord is coming, get ready. And then after this messenger goes out and tells the people to get ready, The Lord himself comes to his people. The messenger prepares the way before him and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The people were asking, complaining to God, where is the God of justice? And the God of justice says, behold, I am coming. The God whom you seek this God of justice, he will come suddenly to his temple. Not uh, suddenly as in he just, he just appears out of nowhere, but suddenly as in, as in quickly, immediately. He will go quickly to his house, the house where his people ought to be worshiping him. He will go into his house and, and cleanse it, even as Christ did. You remember he went to the temple 
uh, suddenly seeming in his ministry and he cleansed the temple. The Lord will come and the messenger of the covenant. So we see who is coming. The Lord himself, Adonai, uh, the God of, of armies, the Lord, the master of Israel, but he's also called here the messenger of the covenant or the angel of the covenant. This is the mediator of the covenant, the second person of the Trinity, the one who will save his people from their sins, uh, the seed of Abraham, David's greater son, even as Pastor Matt talked about this morning. He is coming, God says. The God-man, the Lord the messenger of the covenant, the same person, Christ Jesus. He will come to Israel. That's the first thing that God promises. The Lord himself will come. And the second thing that he promises is that the Lord himself will purify and refine his people. In verses two and three, he says, who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. and He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. The Lord comes and the purpose of his coming is to cleanse and purify his people. God, through Malachi, uses two examples, two pictures, two metaphors. First, that of a refiner's fire. And second, that of fuller's soap. Now, he doesn't go into much detail about the fuller's soap. He focuses more on the refining. But both of these uh, things speak to the fact that the people of Israel, God's chosen people, we ourselves need to be cleansed and purified. Now, fullers were the people who would take all of the wool that was harvested from the sheep. And and before it could be dyed or anything, the the wool needed to be washed. Oil needed to be gotten out of it and all the dirt needed to be washed out of it. And so the fullers were the people who would clean the wool and make it ready to dye. And they had very strong soap to get all of the dirt and grease out of the sheep's wool. Fuller's soap was kind of maybe a little bit like a stain remover or, or bleach or maybe OxyClean you've used that. It was used to uh, whiten the whites and brighten the brights, as the old advertisement said. The fullers would take something that was dirty and stained, and, and they would work it and scrub it until it was white and ready to be dyed and made into clothing. They would take that, that dirtiness and cleanse it the one who comes and is like fuller's soap says that though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. The Lord who comes washes and cleanses his people from all of their sins by his own pure and spotless life. Malachi says he's like fuller soap, but he's also like a refiner's fire. You know that refining gold and silver is is the process of of superheating those metals to burn all of the impurities out of it. See 
When you refine gold, you take all of your dirty gold bits and you put it in, in a little pot called a crucible. Pile it all in there and then you stick it in a super hot furnace. And the heat doesn't melt the crucible, but it melts all the gold. And as the gold melts, all of the impurities, the dross comes up to the top and either burns away or is scraped off by the refiner. Christ is said here to be the refiner who sits and and purifies the silver, who will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. He'll remove all of the impurities out of his people, cleansing them. Now you notice here, the pictures of a refiner's fire and fuller's soap are used. Does the refiner, does the fuller seek to destroy the product? No. He seeks to make it that which is clean and whole, that which is glorifying to himself and to the creator. Christ did not come to destroy his people, but rather to take them and cleanse them through his blood, to purify them in their lives by his Holy Spirit, to make them acceptable to God. Now notice, Christ, the Lord who comes, does not come and say, clean your life up. He doesn't say, here's some soap, wash yourself. He doesn't say, here's the crucible, jump on in. No, this Lord sovereignly takes his people and cleanses them and makes them new. Sovereignly takes his people and purifies them and refines them so they are acceptable to God. This God makes for himself true worshipers. That's the third thing that God promises here. That the Lord himself will come, the Lord himself will refine, the Lord himself will make true worshipers. He says there at the end of verse three of the sons of Levi, they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. It is those who are purified by the Lord who comes, who bring offerings of righteousness. No one else can. Those who are still dead in their trespasses and sins, those who have not been cleansed by the blood of Christ, cannot bring offerings of righteousness to God. They cannot bring offerings of righteousness that are pleasing to God. It is only those purified by the Lord that bring pleasing offerings to him. And the Lord purifies his people so that we can worship him. You know that the only thing that uh, is explicitly said that God is seeking in the New Testament is worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. God is seeking those worshipers. God is gathering his people, his worshipers together. God is cleansing them by the blood of Christ and making them people who are able to bring offerings in righteousness, offerings of righteousness, to live lives which, which are acceptable and holy to him, which, which delight him. He makes us pure and clean so that we are able to do that and so that we do do that. The Lord purifies us and makes us his worshipers. How glorious 
How glorious. God is seeking worshipers and he gathers his worshipers. He makes them worshipers. He has made you, if you are in Christ, one of his worshipers. He has purified you sovereignly of his own choice. The Lord Jesus Christ himself has done this. This is marvelous. This is a wonderful promise of God. It shows his sovereign glory. It shows his great love that he would take us who are stained with sin and unrighteousness, whose lives were focused on self and pleasure, and removing that from us and pointing us to Christ by his Spirit so that we could see the glory of Jesus. We could see how he saves sinners. We could run after him. And then, and following him, we can worship God as we ought to do. A marvelous promise. But in addition with this great promise of God, the Lord also offers a great warning. Look at verses 5 and 6. We see Jehovah's warning. He says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The Lord warns Israel and promises that he will not only draw near and come to them to purify his people, but he will also draw near for judgment. We see another picture of that judgment in the New Testament in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, when uh, we see the, the great white throne of judgment. John writes there, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. And then in chapter 21, verse 8, John writes, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Those who are not written in the Lamb's book of life, those who continue in rebellion against God, who do not turn from sin, turning to Christ, are judged. The Lord says that he will draw near for judgment and he will be the witness against them. The God of all the earth, the God who sees all things, who knows all things, who knows the hearts and the minds of men, he will stand as witness against all those who reject the Lord Jesus. People will be able to come and say, well, you know, God, I lived, I lived a pretty good life. God will say, I, I know what was in your heart. I know what was in your mind. I, 
have the list of all these things which you have done and which you have sinned against me and against your neighbor. The measure is not a good life according to man. The measure is my holy, unalterable law. You've been found wanting. The Lord of all the earth witnesses, testifies against these people, and the Lord of all the earth judges against these people. This is a great warning. And why does the Lord do this? Because, he says, he does not change. God does not change. The people of Israel were saying, well, everyone who does evil is good in God's sight. God delights in evil. He's changed. He's not the same God who gave us the law. He's prospering the wicked. God says, I do not change. He says, I will judge the world. The complaint of these people of Israel is is soundly refuted by God. God says that he will do justice. He says the ungodly will receive their judgment and punishment. God here effectively says that he's not slow in doing what he promises. But he is long-suffering toward us, isn't he? Not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Men should repent and turn to Christ. And it's because God does not change that his people are not destroyed. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God says, it's such a very good thing for you, O Israel, that I do not change that I am faithful to my word, I'm, I'm faithful to my promises, that I am patient and full of compassion, that I love with an everlasting love, even as he told them in chapter one that he loved them. He says, Israel, this is great news for you. I will come to you. I myself will purify you and make you worshipers. It's because I don't change that you're not consumed. It's because I don't change that I will have grace on you. I will show mercy to you. I will save you. It's because God does not change that he is faithful to his promises. And this is such very good news, isn't it? Good news for Israel, surely good news for us. God isn't a capricious changing God like the gods of the nations. He isn't like Zeus or Odin who would say one thing and then do another or or would promise one thing and then change their mind and go back on it or one minute we're blessing their nations and the next minute we're tormenting them. God does not change. If he says he will do something, he will surely do it. If he makes a promise to his people, he will fulfill that promise. If he says, look to Christ and be saved, you may rest assured He will save all who look to Christ because he does not change. The living and true God will always do what he says he will do. He will never go back on his word. Do you believe this, dear people? Do you trust this promise of God that he does not change? Or do you forget easy to forget, isn't it? When 
trials and tribulations come in our life, we think, oh no. Maybe God has forgotten. He has not. He uses trials and tribulations in our lives to purify us. He uses trials and tribulations in our life to refine us. He uses trials and tribulations in our life not because he has forgotten us, not because he changes, not because he delights in the evildoer, but because he is the unchanging, gracious God who desires a people pure and spotless, the bride of Christ. Have you trusted in his promise that if you look to Christ, you will be saved? Are you trying to purify yourself? Are you trying to clean up your own life? Have you given up entirely saying, well, it doesn't seem like that does any good? Or are you looking to Christ? You cannot purify yourself. You cannot clean up your own life. But Christ can and will purify all who come to him in faith, making them fit for heaven, fit to spend eternity with him in the praise of the God who never changes and remains faithful to all of his promises. Let's pray. Lord and our God, we marvel and delight in this great promise which you gave to your people Israel. Lord, we thank you that you sent Christ, the Lord himself coming to his people, coming to purify them by his death on the cross, coming to purify them to make them worshipers of almighty God. Lord, we thank you for this. We ask that you would purify more and more and more, that you would save all of your people, all whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, and that you would have true worshipers for yourself. Lord, help us to remember this truth. Help us to remember your great promises to us. Help us to remember that you are the God who purifies and you're not doing it to consume us. You're not doing it because you delight in in the wicked. You're doing it because you love us. Remind us of this, Lord, and help us to trust in you and in your promises. Help us to depend solely upon you and all of life. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Let's take a few moments now to meditate on this great promise of God, that which was fulfilled in Christ, the God-man who came, who lived a perfect life, who died upon the cross for our sins and who rose again for our justification to make us true worshipers of God, the God who never changes. Let's think about these things.